We've been in a, a series for a little while, uh, and we've been trying to connect some dots um, while we've talked about foundations. And what we've re- really been trying to say is that uh, we as a church want to be uh, a place, a home, a house, whatever metaphor you might want to use, where people can meet with God. And when you boil it all down, everything we've said over the last five weeks or however long it is that I've been uh, nattering on has been about that. It's been about becoming a place where people can experience God for themselves, where people uh, can gather, be welcomed, and where people can worship, where people can learn to pray, grow in prayer, where people can be generous and, and receive generosity, but really at the bottom of it all is this vision to be a place where God is welcome and where people can come and experience the life of God because we believe that it's only God, it's only because of God uh, that we can experience change and transformation and hope and new life and all that stuff that we all, I think, deeply yearn for. Uh, in our, not just in the church, but we all deeply yearn for in our culture. That's sort of our underwriting thesis, if you like, that God is pretty awesome and he does really good stuff. And when we get around him, good stuff can happen. That's sort of it. But we've, I think we've come to a point where we've said, well, we've done enough of that for now. So we've, we're leaving behind this sort of foundations metaphor. We may return to it uh, at some stage. We're leaving that behind. What we want to do for the next few weeks is to join with the church actually throughout the world and uh, look at the early part of Acts is a book in the, in the New Testament. It's the first book uh, that comes after the Gospels. Some of you who are new to this maybe don't know, but there are four Gospels in the New Testament. And what they are is essentially biographies of Jesus' life. They tell us about this person, Jesus, who turned the world around him upside down. And who since his life, death, resurrection and ascension has continued to turn the world upside down. That's what these biographies are all about. And this particular book, Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, if you like to give it a, a sort of longer title, is a book uh, that Luke, one of the authors of one of the Gospels, writes. It's like a follow-up. It's like it's, it's almost as if Luke is sitting and studying and saying, you know, I really did enjoy writing that, that book. What did I call it? Luke. But yeah, that was a good one. Uh, I think there's more, though. And it's like, you know, he gets like a check in the post from Theophilus, who's introduced to us in verse 1, the reading we just had. And Theophilus says, Luke, you did some great work in that gospel. I wonder if I could, you know, if I gave you 50 quid, and, you know, just, would you carry on? Would you tell us about what happened after that? Part 2 of that. And that's what Luke does. And that's what we have in the Acts. So if, so, so if, if Luke's gospel, if you like, was the Acts of Jesus, What we have here is the acts of the Holy Spirit in the life of the early church. And we want to say together at this point in our journey that there's so much for us to pick up from this story. As we figure out what it means to be a church, what it means to be an early church. Which reminds me actually of what Rowan Williams says, who was former Archbishop of Canterbury, whose whose wife, Jane, taught me at college. He said, for all we know, we are the early church. This thing could go on for a lot longer. (laughs) Okay. We want to figure out what it means to be a church today. To be faithful to the Holy Spirit today. And it's difficult to figure that out, isn't it, in the world that we live in. I don't know how many of you sort of woke up to the news of what happened in Manchester. It was Monday night, wasn't it? 
at that concert and were just shocked. Maybe some of you were on social media and you were aware of what was happening as it was happening, but I wasn't. I was in my study in the morning and Amy came in and just said to me, Johnny, the most terrible things happened in Manchester. And just said, look, this is what's gone on. I was, the first thing I did, I just wept. Just wept as I heard what had gone on. Now, for me, Manchester has a particular resonance. It's the place I grew up. Moved there when I was seven with my family. My dad was a vicar in South Manchester, and I lived there for the next sort of 11 years. So really, most of my formative life was in Manchester. I remember the first time I went to the MEN Arena, what then was the 9X Arena. And I was probably about the age of some of these uh, boys and girls who, who died who lost their lives. Probably about 13, 14, around that age when I first went there. And I grew up in a place called Didsbury, which some of you will have heard about last week, because Didsbury is, is the place where the mosque that this uh, young man who, who blew himself up, that's where he went to. So I was hearing this story, in fact he went to Burnage High School, which is a high school just down the road from the high school I went to. So as I'm hearing this story, there's this, just this, you know, unbelief, I guess, that I'm experiencing, and many of us experience that, also this personal element. These shocking events, they cause us to ask questions about fundamental things. They cause us as a society, as individuals, right? But also as a society to ask some fundamental questions. Even questions like, what is the place of faith? What is the place of religion in our world? Can religion have a place in our world? That's a question that's being asked all the time at the moment. Now the disciples of Jesus who we just read about in Acts are asking similar sized questions. At the time we meet them in the book of Acts, they've just been surrounded by shocking events. Shocking to them. Not shocking in the same way as what's happened in Manchester, but shocking to them. The kind of events that turn their world upside down. You see the guy that they pledged their allegiance to, the guy that they staked their whole lives upon, they dropped everything to follow him. That same guy, Jesus Christ, had just been killed. He'd just been crucified. In one sense, it was an entirely predictable outcome. Crucifixion was exactly what happened to people like Jesus who claimed to be kings. Rebels were put to death on a cross. That did not make Jesus unique, but it was a surprise. It was shocking to these disciples who had expected that Jesus would wander into Jerusalem with them, overthrow Herod or whoever, Pilate, and end up in charge. And that they'd be able to divvy up the spoils between them. They'd be able to join him in power. This didn't happen. It was shocking to them. And so the disciples end up at the beginning of Acts shocked again because Jesus, who died, was raised from the dead. Another shock upon a shock. And by the way, there was no expectation in the ancient world. Just like there's no expectation today. There is no expectation of resurrection to happen right here in front of us today. Just as there was no expectation then. This is not some paradigm that we've sort of grown out of. No, these disciples were completely shocked by the resurrection of Jesus. They didn't expect it. But the only person that seemed to expect it was Jesus himself. And Jesus shows up to, to these disciples in the midst of their shock. And like us, they have loads of questions to ask, ask him. Now the question they actually ask him is an interesting one. Look at this question. Verse 6. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time 
going to restore their kingdom to Israel? That question doesn't really make much sense, does it? Needs a bit of un, it needs a bit of sort of decoding, if you like. Lord, are this, is it at this time that you're going to... Uh, let me remind myself. Lord, are you at this time, sorry, going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What is going on? What is this question about? It's, this question, I think, reveals something of what the disciples' expectation for Jesus was. You see, the disciples, as I said, wandered into Jerusalem with Jesus, and everybody shouted, Hosanna, this is just a few weeks ago, right? Everybody shouted, Hosanna, here's the king. It's awesome, isn't it? We know this guy, by the way. And it's this unbelievable moment of expectation. A couple days later, the same crowds are begging for Jesus to be crucified. But the disciples, of course, expected Jesus to be enthroned. And now that he's back, it's like they're saying, Jesus, are we going to get back onto that agenda? That whole thing about you being crucified, that was a bit of a curveball. That did shock us. And the resurrection thing, well, that was a nice surprise, Jesus. We like it when you do that kind of thing. Are you going to get back onto that thing that we thought, you know, are we getting back onto the old agenda of like ruling and reigning, Jesus? We've put a lot in for you. We've staked everything upon you. Are you now going to give us our just rewards? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, are you going to set up a visible, tangible, real kingdom today? You're going to overthrow all of your enemies today. Are you going to help us, Jesus, return from the slavery we experience? You're going to make this real for us. It's not an unreasonable question. Beneath the surface, though, is an expectation of a kind of kingdom that Jesus just doesn't want, at least immediately, to realize. The vision of the kingdom that the disciples have in this early question, I think, is more akin to like a, a setting up of a, almost, almost a caliphate idea. The setting up of a kingdom which is so visible that everybody within it has to be brought to subjugation by coercion. It's not a vision of inner transformation, it's a vision of outer coercion. Does that make sense? Of an outside-in transformation, not an inside-out transformation. So Jesus resists their question. He says simply this, it's not for you to know the times or days. The Father is set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's not for you to know, Jesus says. The dates, the times, the Father has set. But there is something you'll know. You will know God's power. You'll experience God's power. The disciples, they're trying to know the wrong thing. They want to have complete concrete, take it to the bank assurance of what Jesus is going to do and when he's going to do it and what it's going to look like for them. And, and they've just been through the mill and they're just like, just Jesus can, can this roller coaster thing is not really working for me. My nerves are shredded. Let me make it simple. I just want to know. How many of us feel like that? We just want simplicity, we want concrete from Jesus and he just keeps saying, I, you don't get to know that but you will know me. Folks, this is what the kingdom is about. 
It's about a different kind of knowledge. The kingdom is not about having, the kingdom of God at least, is not about having complete assurance at every given moment of what life will look like. The kingdom of God is all about having complete assurance of the presence of the one who knows all things. But it's easy to understand how the disciples get waylaid in their vision of the kingdom. In fact, our first reading, the reading from Ezekiel, tells us a little bit about what God's people have expected from the kingdom of God. You doing all right? You tracking with me? Yeah? I don't know if this is it's connecting. You feel, you're with me? Yeah. Okay. Because I can stop. <laughs> Joking. <laughs> Monadic, folks. Verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll just stop there for now. I'll take you out of the nations. I'll gather you from all the countries. Verse 24. Bring you back to your own land. This, folks, is the vision of the kingdom presented in the Old Testament. And it's all about return from exile, return from slavery. See, God's people, Israel, had been taken away from their land. They'd been put into slavery. And Ezekiel, along with the other prophets, is saying there's coming a day. There is coming a day when you will come, when God will bring us home. The vision of the kingdom is homecoming. Homecoming. Being restored. Being restored to the land of Israel. Now, given that, it's easy to understand how the disciples are like, well, Jesus, you've done the thing, right? The whole death and resurrection thing. Now surely it's time for homecoming. Surely now you're going to do the thing you said you were going to do. You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. But the problem with the disciples is they've overemphasized the first part of the promise. And they've missed the stuff that comes after. And this is what comes after. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone. And I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and leave you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. And you will be my people and I'll be your God. Then, in other words, you'll know me. You'll know me. You'll be my people. My people! Can't do that. <laughs> so work with skinny jeans and a beard. Never mind. You'll be my people and I'll be your God. It's going to be a heart-to-heart connection. And how's it come about? comes about by the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing. Jesus said, you know, God in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel says, I'm going I'm to cleanse all of your impurities. I'm going to wash away all of your sins. That's what homecoming looks like. And it looks like having a new heart. In other words, homecoming looks like forgiveness. Homecoming looks like transformation. Homecoming looks like a, a fossilized heart being replaced with a fleshy one. A heart that's hardened to the world. A heart that's hardened to compassion and empathy. A heart, that, a heart that's bitter and twisted being, and just hard. Untouchable. 
The kind of heart you have to have if you're going to stand in the foyer of a, a gig and blow people up. That kind of heart, that kind of heart has to be replaced. And Jesus offers in acts and a, a completion, the completion of the promise that Ezekiel offered to God's people, which is a, a, a heart transplant. The replacement of a bitter and twisted heart for a new one. And Jesus didn't just talk a good game. Jesus embodied this. Jesus embodied homecoming. If you read the Gospels, these stories I talked about, and if you have never read one, I just encourage you to start. Just, just read it. And see how it resonates with you. You might want to start with Mark. It's the shortest one. You might want to sense an achievement. Start with the short one. And what we see on page after page after page is Jesus giving the gift of homecoming to people. People who, who, who are far away from, from life. People who are far away from God. People far away from connection with other people. People who are broken and sick. That the least in that society. People who are prostitutes, tax collectors, people who nobody would be seen dead with. Lepers. You know, if you were a leper, you weren't allowed anywhere near anybody who didn't have leprosy. And when you did, when, I can't remember the exact distance, but if you were within a certain distance, you had to shout out at the top of your voice, unclean, unclean. So everybody would know to stay clear of you. Those people, Jesus doesn't just wait for them to come to him, he approaches them. And one of the first miracles he, he was recorded in the gospel is, you know, the guy says, you know, if you will, if you will, if you wish, if you can make me clean. Jesus says, I will be made clean. And he touches the leprous person. Just imagine for a And the person is healed. What is Jesus doing? He's not just healing this person's body, he's bringing them home. It's homecoming. It's all about the return from slavery, return from exile, the return from being an outsider. And in Jesus' kingdom, the outsiders become the insiders. Amen. Because they belong to Jesus, because Jesus restores them. He doesn't just restore their bodies, he, just re he restores their spirits and their souls. People have been broken by unforgiveness and bitterness. People who know that they could never possibly be forgiven under the temple system. Jesus goes into the temple, he turns the tables on their heads and he says, you watch me, watch me forgive them. Yeah. And, he, and he touches them and he pronounces and announces their forgiveness. Mm. There's a paralytic man, isn't there, in Mark chapter 4, what does he do? The, the person is, is, he heals them, and he says, son, and the first thing he does, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> and all the religious people are like, whoa, you can't do you're not a high priest, you can't do that. And Jesus says, well, which one's more, more difficult? To say to this person, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. The implication being clearly it's more difficult to say to somebody, get up and walk, right? So Jesus says, just to prove that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, man, get up. And he does. It's about homecoming, it's about cleansing. This is what Jesus' kingdom is about. It is about transformation. What do these disciples who wander around with him for three years experience? What does everybody who comes into contact with this man, Jesus, experience? Transformation. Just what Amy said before. You can't stay near this guy, Jesus, and stay the same.
There are people, aren't there, in life who are influential. For good and ill, by the way. And when you're with them, they rub off on you. And, you know, somebody around you, I mean, it happens to me when I sort of move northward in the country. I'm actually from the north, but I lived quite a lot in the south and we were in America for a bit. My accent's become vague and generic. And when I'm hanging out at home with some people from the north, the real north, not the Midlands, the proper bit, they'll say, oh, you sound in There are people that influence us, people who rub off on us. Jesus was one of those people to the nth degree. Jesus is one of those people. You get around him, just bits of, bits of him just rub off him. You become more like him. You begin to desire the things he desires. You begin to love the things he loves. You begin to love the people he loves. People who you just wouldn't be, previously, you just wouldn't have wanted to be seen with. You want to flock to them. You want to embrace them. You want to care for them. People, not just people, but things like... You know, I know some of you maybe are new to this church and you know, how on earth are these guys spending 30 minutes singing these songs? There are three chords in all of them. <laughs> <laughs> the same three chords. <laughs> how are they doing it? Are they not bored? I'm bored. You're thinking I'm bored. Yeah, some of us are bored. <laughs> but some of us, it's like, it's the highlight of our week to be in a space with other people who feel the same way about Jesus as we do. Because for some of us, you know, he's, he's got involved in the middle of our lives and he's turned them upside down. And we're better people for it. We're not better, we don't we come here because we have it figured out. We come here because he's done something for us. And we want to be people who can inspire us and encourage us in that. You know, you get around Jesus, he transforms, he transforms those disciples. It's not just for these disciples, it's for you and me too. It's for you and me too. This vision of the kingdom, this vision not of the, the caliphate on earth, the vision of God's kingdom, a kingdom of homecoming, a kingdom where the isolated can be restored, a kingdom of, of forgiveness, a kingdom where everybody and anybody can come and receive a second chance, and a third chance, and a fourth chance, and a 77th chance. That kingdom and the kingdom of transformation where broken, fractured, stony hearts can be replaced with flesh-beating hearts. That's the vision of the kingdom. And that's for each of us. How does it come? It comes about by the knowledge, by the experience, by first-hand knowledge of God. The problem, folks, with people who bomb other people is not, as our culture would tell us, too much God. The problem is too little, God. There is not enough of the real God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God who gives himself again and again and again, the God of compassion and mercy and grace and kindness and forgiveness and homecoming and deliverance. There's not enough of that God in their hearts. If only they knew. Who will tell them? Who will tell them? Who will tell them they don't have to do that? Who will tell them there's, there's forgiveness? Who will tell them there's homecoming for them? They don't have to be socially isolated and excluded. 
that there's a family into which they can be placed, into which they can belong. Who will tell them? To what Jesus says in in Acts 1 is that the whole point is that we receive the, the homecoming of God, the forgiveness of God, the transformation of God through the Spirit of God, as both Ezekiel and Jesus say, it's all about the Spirit, an inside-out transformation. We experience it so we can become witnesses to it. God does not want more warriors. He wants witnesses. He wants people to be so filled up with His power, with His love, with His courage, with His mercy, with His kindness, all by His Spirit, all by an inside-out transformation that He and only He can do, so that we might go and bear witness. And what's the one thing a witness absolutely has to have? The one thing that a witness cannot be a witness without having had. What is it? A first-hand experience. You can't be a witness. You cease to be a witness if you haven't seen something. But if you've seen, if you've tasted and seen the goodness of God in Jesus Christ, you are a witness. We need to know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Not just do you know about him. Do you know some dates and times and facts and figures from the Gospels? No, not just that. Do you know him? Do you know know his love for you? Do you know how merciful he is to you? Do you know how much he would give himself again for you. Do you know how much he wants to stretch out his hand and touch you to make you well? Do you know how the thing that's most troubling you is, is, on, is in, it's on his, he is attentive to it, it is on his mind? Do you know the scripture says that you're the apple of his eye? That he's concerned with you, that he's not too busy running heaven and earth to think of you, to think of us? Do you know he hears you when you cry? Do you know he's interceding? The Bible says he's interceding at the right hand of the Father for you. He's praying for you. He cares for you. Do you know that? Have you experienced his love? Not just a distant, dusty idea somebody told you about in a Sunday school. Have you, have you experienced it? Has it moved your heart? He wants it to move your heart. He wants you to give the kind. He wants to give you the kind of heart that's receptive to His love. He wants to pour out His Spirit into your life, not just once, not just at conversion, but again and again and again. The Spirit of God becomes the one through who we become converted every day, every morning. Like Wesley apparently said, and then I found out on Google he did it. <laughs> Guys, don't go on Google when you want to write good sermon. Every morning I set myself on fire and I go out into the world and they watch me burn. The Spirit of God wants to set us on fire every morning that we might do the things of God yeah. every day, that we might witness to His goodness. Church, how do we become witnesses? How do we become with people who know for ourselves? Not just no second hand, but no first hand. The scripture here says in Acts 1, three things. Don't have time to talk too long, but here are three things. Firstly, we wait. Wait, Jesus says. Wait to receive the gift. Firstly, wait. 
Waiting is not passive. There are two kinds of waiting. There's passive waiting. There's active waiting. There's waiting in your dentist's office. That's passive waiting, folks. Sit back, immediately get your smartphone out and drop, tune out. You're somewhere else. That's not this kind of waiting. Active waiting is about being devoted, pressing in, not tuning out, pressing in, stepping in, joining in. That kind of waiting God wants for us. We, firstly, we wait. Secondly, we receive. We receive. Notice the word receive. We don't earn. You know, God doesn't give knowledge of God to the earnest. He does not give knowledge of God to the, to the religious. God gives knowledge of God to the hungry, to the desperate, to the have-nots, to the broken, to those that can engage with that part of their life, life where there is need. It's about receiving. We wait, we receive, and then we witness. We witness. We witness to his goodness. We witness through first-hand experience. Why don't we stand? Yes.